Before we get into it, I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole text. The superscription says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering, and whole burnt offering. Then, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Father, we do come to this text now and plead, plead with you for your leading and your grace. Open our eyes that we might understand what you have for us in your holy word and change us, we ask. In the name of Christ, amen. amen. Now the best way to know uh, what a man thinks in his heart about God is to determine how he or she responds to sin in his life. Some deny that they have any sin. There isn't a single transgression that you do not justify. And in doing so, 1 John 1.10 says that they make God a liar. So a person that does not confess sin, but rather justifies it, justifies it and, and, and never declares to be a wrongdoer at any point, that person lives under the assumption that the Almighty is himself a deceiver. There are other people who actually embrace their sin. They say, you know, it's covered by the blood. And that's okay. And then they revel in their sin. And in doing so, then they make God unholy. 
Jude 4 says that they turned the grace of God into licentiousness or in the Greek, gross immorality. So a man who embraces his sin lives under, under the assumption that the Trinity is a defiled deity. Now, other people sweep their sin under the rug. They, 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 they simply just hide it. And in doing so, they show that actually to, to them, God is not really all-knowing, or, or rather that He is a forgetful God uh, who can't really keep record, as He says in His Word, of the transgressions committed against Him. So, um, you, some might have a lying God, others have an unholy God, others have a forgetful God or a powerless God, or else you can have the God of the Bible, who is truth, who is holy, who is omniscient, omnipotent, so forth and so on. And if you have the latter, of course, you are a child of the living God. But if that's the case, if you're a child of God, you do need to learn then how to deal with sin in your life. Because sin is an ever-present reality in your life, as a, even as a Christian. It's always there. Christians sin every single day. So you need to know how to deal with sin. And I want to give you a three-step guide here from this passage on how to do that. A, a three-step process on how to deal with sin in your life. Now, again, by way of background, as we read in the superscription, the passage, the psalm here, it was written on the heels of Nathan's confrontation of King David over his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, he'd taken a woman who was not his wife, who was the wife of another, and committed adultery with her. And when she got pregnant, he tried to cover up his sin by asking Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, to return to his house from the war so that he, by chance, might have relations with his wife. And then, lo and behold, they together raise David's son as a happy, deceived family. And that way, David skips out on the consequence. But, of course, that doesn't work out. And so David has Uriah murdered, and then he takes Bathsheba as his wife. And of course, God in his mercy, after the sin of adultery and murder, God in his mercy, in his mercy actually, rather than just leaving David alone, sends his prophet, Nathan, to him to confront David, to expose this wickedness of David. And so Nathan comes to David and exposes what David had done. And so in the face of this confrontation, there's a question hanging over David's head. What are you going to do about your sin? It's been pointed out to you. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Will you deny your sin and make God a liar? Will you embrace your sin and make God an unholy deity? Uh, will you hope that God will sweep your sin under the rug and just forget about it and then make him powerless? Or will you deal with your sin? And the answer, of course, to that question is in this psalm. Uh, David, here, he, we find him dealing rightly with his sin before God. And in so doing, he leaves us with a kind of three-step guide as to 
how it is that we deal with sin. And the first step here is that you have to ask for compassion, that you have to ask for mercy. He does that in verses 1 and 2. Notice he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So again, you have an appeal for mercy immediately here. David, uh, in here, is like a good lawyer. And he actually compiles... He, he, he compiles different arguments before God to strengthen his case. In verse 1, he specifically grounds his appeal to God for compassion on God's own character. He knew that God is full of loving kindness and compassion. And he's asking God to display those same attributes that he had said he had back when he first appeared to Moses and so forth and so on. He had said these things about himself and David is asking, please show them in my case. Put them on display in my life. He's asking God to blot out his transgressions. The verb to blot out here is very strong. It's the same verb that God used concerning humanity before the flood. That he said he blotted all mankind from the face of the earth. David wanted his transgressions here to be expunged. And he's saying that that would have been consistent with God's character to have all of his sin disappear. He knew that God is one who is naturally, in his own character, naturally inclined towards mercy. Not everybody understands that about the Lord. They don't. Some um, are like that manager in the parable in Luke 19, 21, that says to the master, I knew you to be a hard and an exacting man. You, you reap where you did not sow. I knew you to be that way, and therefore I hid my talent. In other words, some, of, some people live by Satan's lies, who tells humanity that God is not good, that God is not compassionate, and that you cannot throw yourself into his arms. He's not to be trusted. He is not to be appealed to for mercy. Some people are like that. But... David was. David understood that God is one who is naturally inclined to forgive, that he loves to show mercy. The people who know their God, they can run to him. No matter how bad the sin it is that you've committed, if you know God, you know that you can run to him because he is greater than all our sin. He is greater than all our sin. And so you know I can come to you. Now, apart from appealing to God on the, on the basis of his own character, David also appeals to him on the basis of his own word. Uh, in verse 2, he talks about being washed thoroughly from his iniquity and cleansed from his sin. That imagery uh, of sin as that which needed to be washed away is one that he would have picked up from the sacrificial system, from the temple system. Hebrews 9.13 says that, the sprinkled blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. In other words, God established these rituals to cleanse the outward man so that those same rituals would point to the fact that God also himself by his own power, by the power of the blood of his son, 
himself cleanses the inward man, that he washes sins away. And David was coming for that, which means that David is taking God at his, at his word. The Lord says that all who come to him will find him to be a merciful and gracious God. He had certainly said that through the sacrificial system, bring in this animal and you will be forgiven. Just do it the way that I want you to do it, but you will receive atonement and mercy and grace. And so God had promised that. He, he promises, even through Jesus Christ, even more clearly that, the, that all who draw near to Him will find in Him uh, forgiveness, that they will never be cast out. He says that He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to Him. The question is whether you want to take Him at His word or not. That, that is what it comes down to. And David did. He brought the Lord's own words to Him. He cried out for mercy on the basis of God's character on the, first, on the one hand, and on the basis of His word on the second hand. If you think about it, King Darius, in the account of Daniel, he, um, he was well disposed toward Daniel. Uh, so his character was one that wanted to forgive Daniel, but his own word did not allow him to forgive Daniel. And then on the other hand, you have King Saul, who... Uh, had an ancient promise that he would leave behind or he would leave the Gibeonites alone. No king of Israel and no Israelite would touch these Gibeonites that they had made a, a, a pact with. But Saul himself, he was ill-disposed toward the Gibeonites and he puts them to death. So sometimes a king's character and his word may be at odds with one another. But that does not happen with God. He is both disposed toward mercy, and he also has given the promise of mercy. And so you can come to him pleading with him for compassion. And in fact, that is the first thing that you need to do when you sin. You come to God for mercy. He is disposed to save you. Now here's step two. So after you've, you have settled the matter that God is merciful and that, that he is willing to forgive, then you need to take a second step, and that is to acknowledge guilt. To acknowledge your guilt. Verses 3 to 5. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. The personal pronoun, I, in verse 3 here, is actually emphatic in the Hebrew. Uh, and the verb that is translated as to know, you can actually translate as to recognize. It has this idea of acknowledging. So you can translate the whole phrase here in verse 3 as, I myself recognize and acknowledge my transgressions. David was actually saying that he had in fact committed adultery and that he had in fact murdered and that he had in fact lied. And uh, he, um, it, it, it's not just um, that he's saying it to Nathan, the prophet, but he is saying it to God himself. And he is calling a spade a spade. He is saying, these are transgressions. The, the unrepentant heart, again, doesn't do that. You, you say, it was a mistake, or it was some sort of slip up, or an oversight. It was an error. You try to cover up 
with your sin by euphemizing it, by calling it something else. But David, he wasn't doing that. He is letting even the guilt of his sin settle into his conscience. He was letting sin burn his own conscience. My sin, he says, is ever before me. We have this practice um, in modern evangelicalism. I don't know where we got this from. Where we tell each other, look, don't dwell on your sin, okay? Don't dwell on it. Don't think about your sin too much. Otherwise, you're not going to be walking in, in victory or by faith. But you know, that actually is not biblical. Ezekiel, you can turn there with me. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9. And, 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 and you'll see from this that there is a level of self, of, of self-hatred that God expects of those who sin against him. Verse 9, Then those who will escape remember me, uh, will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive, how I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me, and by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols, and what? They will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict this disaster on them. Self-hatred. Turn over to chapter 16, verse 60. You hear so much in this culture that you ought to love yourself and esteem yourself so highly. And here is the word of God saying, no, rather hate yourself and allow the conscious the consciousness of your own guilt to simmer in your own heart nevertheless uh, ezekiel chapter 16 verse 60 i will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth and i will establish an everlasting covenant with you then you will remember your uh, then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters and not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may remember and be ashamed, and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation, when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares. And you can turn over also to chapter 36. This is a theme that pops up Time and time again, uh, chapter 36, verse 31. Then I will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. And of course, then you can turn over to Zechariah chapter 12, uh, verse 10, where it says that when God opens up a fountain in Israel, there will be weeping, lamenting over the one whom they pierced. And if you turn over to Luke chapter 18, verse 13, what you find is the publican, the tax collector, who cannot even look up. And the, the Pharisee, he is all proud and looking up to heaven and, and uh, saying how good he is. And Jesus says the one who went home justified was the one who was actually full of shame and self, self-loathing. 
So over and over again in the Bible, self-hatred is put as part of true repentance and part of the healing process. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Notice the, the meaning or, or, or the mourning is something that you do. The comforting is something that is done to you. They shall be comforted. Not, not, not they will comfort themselves, but they shall be comforted. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but, but I'll show you from Isaiah, if you want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 57. Because you say, well, if we are to hate ourselves and to allow the guilt of sin to burn in our own consciousness and to even load our, our own minds with the guilt of our own sin, then how is it that we are, able gonna, that we are ever going to attain to true joy? And the answer to that is in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 17 and on. Isaiah 57, 17. It says, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry. And he went on turning away in the way of his heart. I have seen his way, but I will heal him. So here's the healing process. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. Verse 19, creating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near. In other words, God creates the comfort. You mourn, God comforts. You mourn, God comforts. And he comforts when he wants. And that comes eventually. But your own duty is to even load your own, your own conscience with the guilt of your own sin. David this is what David was doing. My sin is ever before me. He had sin persistently in his mind and he under understood the gravity of his own sin. In verse 4, he said that he had sinned against God and God alone. So uh, his adultery and his murder, he realized he had violated um, not simply man's law by that, but divine law. That was the climax of his wrongdoing, and that is what he's pointing the finger to. David had wronged God. That was the worst thing of this, and that is the thing that he's keeping in mind. Not how small it was, the sin, but rather he's maximizing the sin, saying, I did it against God. I sinned against God. All other um, wrongs that he did, like killing a man and like defiling a woman, all those wrongs took the back seat here. He is focused on the highest of wrongs, and that is sinning against God. He had sinned in the very presence of God. He said that, I have done evil in your sight. You know, you think about it, you tend to be in your best behavior in front of um, somebody who stands in authority. Imagine you would never commit a crime in front of a police officer. Uh, or if you were before the President of the United States, I'm sure you would be in your best behavior. And yet, David is saying, I was in the presence of God Almighty and I did this. That is how you ought to think of God. He is not denying his sin. He's not defending it. 
he actually says, you, God, you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, he wasn't going to cast any blame on God and whatever verdict against him God issued, he would accept that as fair. Again, unregenerate people do not think this way. Cain said, my punishment is too great for me. That is the first thing that, he, that came to his mind after he had murdered his own brother, the first thing that came to his mind was, you're punishing me too harshly. So when you're lost and unrepentant, the last thing that you want to do is, is uh, or the last thing that you want to think about is the fact that you've offended God. And, and so instead, the focus there is on your reputation and, and, and your, own, your own good. Um, that was the case with Cain. He was worried about himself and his, and his own pain that he was going to have to bear. The same thing with Judas, who was focused on the torment that he felt in his own mind and sought to alleviate that torment by killing himself, not realizing that the torment was only going to get worse. And it's also the pro- it was also the problem with Saul. You remember, he sins against God. And what is his preoccupation? Samuel, please, bless me in front of the people. That's all he cared about. Just bless me in front of these people. Validate me as a truly religious man. He's not thinking about how he offended God. But rather, he's thinking of his own reputation. True repentance, though, it makes a man fall on his face before God. No excuses, no justification, no complaint. You hate yourself. You acknowledge God's perfection. You seek to justify Him. He is right. He is right. I am wrong. And that means that you confess your sins to Him. And not just your actual sins, by the way. Here, David confesses his own actual sins, but he goes a step further and confesses his own original sin. When was the last time you heard that? Uh, Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. The word behold here, uh, it's emphasizing what David is about to say. He's saying, do you think this is bad? Let me take it a step further. At conception, I was already crooked. I came out of the womb a sinner. This is one of those uh, obviously classic texts on the doctrine of original sin, that Adam, our father, fell into sin, and in doing so, he plunged the whole human race into sin. Uh, His sin was imputed to us, as if we had been in the garden, but also, like begets like. So everybody that Adam begets is born with sin. Corruption, Psalm 58, verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. And Job chapter 15, verses 14 and 16 says, What is man that he should be pure, or he who is born of woman that he should be righteous? How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. In other words, there is no such thing as innocent people. None. None are innocent. None of us, because we are crooked and wicked from birth. And we are naturally inclined toward evil. Of course, again, you look at these horrible things that we are looking at in Israel with the terrorists doing what they are doing. And we think to ourselves, 
how can somebody be this evil? How can somebody go so deep into the wickedness and depravity of the human heart? And the answer that we ourselves should give to that is, given the right circumstances, that would be you. Given the right culture, given the right religious setting, that would be you. You would be killing people, beheading babies, or else celebrating it with them yourself. Because that is what human depravity is. It is restrained by God's grace most of the time. Eventually, it breaks out and God lets us see a true picture of it, like we are seeing now. But the reality is that that is what lodges in the heart of all of us. But David, if you think about it, he is actually using all of this, the original sin, he's using it against him. He's using it against him. He had, he had, begin, he had started the psalm by making, a, making an argument for why God should forgive him and show mercy to him. And then he turns over and he begins to make an argument as to why he is this bad, right? And he actually says, look, from the beginning, I have gone astray from you. I have been your enemy. It's interesting because people use the original sin to argue for their own selves. They say, well, nobody's perfect. All of us are born sinners, they might even say. No one is perfect, so why would you expect me to be Anything more than imperfect. But that's not how the, re the regenerate heart responds. No, the child of God actually mourns his own sinful bent and says, no, I, 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 have, I am so evil that there hasn't been a day in my life that I have not fallen short of the glory of God. So, again, the second step in, in dealing with sin is not to minimize it or rather to not minimize it but actually to maximize it and to acknowledge it because your sin no matter how small to uh, relatively speaking it may be it actually is maximal it actually is committed against an infinite being and God wants us to acknowledge that so step one ask for mercy step two acknowledge your guilt and here's the third step Aspire for holiness. Aspire for holiness. Verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. So, so David now, he's opening a, a new section here. He's, he's switching over. And he is starting with, what is it that God wants? Uh, he uses the verb to desire. But that actually can be translated as to take the light in. So he considers at this point, what it is that would bring pleasure to God. And he says that that would be truth in the innermost being, or in the Hebrew, in the secret, in the secret parts. He's talking about that side of you that no one sees. He's talking about who you are in the prayer closet. He's talking about who you are when the doors are shut and it's just you. Do you seek to be rid of sin when it's just you? Do you want that part of you, that secret, secret, hidden part of you that no one sees, do you want that to be clean? Because cleaning the, the inside is what God is after. 
that is what pleases him. And that's a work that only he, by the way, can accomplish. And, and David acknowledges that here. He says, Behold, your desire, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. So if you think about it, truth and wisdom are two divine attributes of God. So David is saying that God alone, you will make me know wisdom. God alone can restore the image of God that we lost by sin. And so David has holiness now in his mind. He, he wants holiness. He, he's begged God for compassion. He's acknowledged his guilt. But now he's stretching out his hand for a blessing. He wants to be like God. He wants to have what God is pleased with. So verse 7 says, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So hyssop was a, was a plant, a uh, member of the mint family that had a hairy stem. And so it could actually hold water pretty well. And because of that, the priests of Israel would use that uh, to absorb the blood of the sacrificed animal and to sprinkle that blood into, in the Passover rites. And that means, again, that what David is saying is, cleanse me with blood. Cleanse me with sacrificial blood. But this is interesting because if you go over the Mosaic law, you'll find one of the glaring things is that there were no sacrifices for adultery. There were no sacrifices for murder. Those sins were dealt with by the capital punishment. So he's asking for a purification that did not exist in that law. So those sins, he is on, uh, he, by asking for those sins to be purged, cleansed by blood, then his assumption there is that one day God will provide his own lamb. He understood that the temple system was but symbolic of the fact that God would one day bring the lamb of God who takes away sin. And so... God is going to save, and he believes that. He says, wash me, and I will be clean. There is a certain level of maximal faith here. I will be clean if you pour the blood of Jesus Christ on me. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can make me well, and actually it can make me whiter than snow, which is a beautiful picture because snow actually melts. Snow can be uh, soiled, but he's saying, if you do the work here, I will be more perfect than the snow. I will be brighter and whiter than snow. And I will not only have true purity, but I also will have joy. Verses 8 and 9, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Notice again, David is not trying to whip himself up into a state of happiness. He's not trying to convince himself that he should be happy and that he should not mourn anymore. But rather, he is asking God for the blessing. He says, you give me joy and gladness. That's a double blessing. Don't just give me joy. Uh, Joy and gladness here are basically synonymous. He's just being He's just being expressive here. Give me joy and gladness. You give it to me. 
and make the bones that you have broken rejoice. It's as, as though he's asking for a mangled body to start dancing. He's asking for a miracle. He wanted God to make this sin himself disappear, to administer comfort, divine comfort to him in a miraculous way. And he, he could, David could ask for this because he knew God. Uh, he, he understood that God had given man a chief end, and that was to rejoice in him and to exalt in him, to glorify him. He's asking for uh, the holiness that actually pleases God because what pleases God, he created us so that we might rejoice in him. And when he sees that, he is pleased. And so he wants that which pleases God, but he also wants that which serves God. And uh, verses 10 through 13 say that. It says, Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. So, So notice the emphasis here is on David as one who is going to be used of God to save souls. He knows that God desires that we should live for the conversion of sinners, but a few things need to happen for us to be effective teachers of righteousness, of sovereign grace. On the one hand, God needs to create in you a clean heart. A clean heart. The, the verb to create here, again, is bara uh, in the Hebrew, which is the same uh, verb that appears in Genesis 1.1. It's the verb that is used for creation out of nothing. Create out of nothing a clean heart for me. If you're in your sin, you don't need just some reparation. You need an entire new nature. You need to be recreated. But even after you've been born again, there's a sense in which you even continue to ask for that. And that process of new creation, recreation continues. And so David sort of completes the picture here, here by also asking for renewal. He wanted a steadfast spirit again. One, um, uh, the, 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 the word steadfast here means firm. So he wants to be fixed on God's law. At one point, he had been fixed on God's law. Then he became loose from God's law because he broke it. And he wanted again to hold on to God's law with all of his heart. So the clean heart, again, and the steadfast spirit, they, they're, they're essentially the same thing. He's talking about an attitude of obedience. He wants to be one who, is, who wants from the heart to obey God. So that's positively... Uh, what you need to live as one who exists for the Great Commission. You want to be one who is saving souls and fulfilling the mission that God has for your life, then you need to have a heart of obedience. But on the other hand, there's a negative here, and, and that is uh, that you, you can't have God remove His presence from you or take His Spirit from you. Now, because uh, He says... Do not take your presence, or do not take me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, am I saying by this, or is David saying by this, that you could lose it, your salvation? Not at all. No, the presence of the Spirit here actually refers to David's ability to reign as the anointed king of Israel, the rightful king of Israel. 
he knew full well that Saul, in the story of Saul, had lost the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would rush upon him and he was able to then defeat the enemies and rule in, in righteousness. And he had lost that because of his sin, because of his lack of fear of God. The Spirit abandoned him and a spirit of, of uh, torment came on Saul and he crashed as the king. He lost his kingdom. But, but David is afraid that the same thing might happen to him. And so he, he's pleading that God would not do that to him. The point is that believers actually can sin themselves into uselessness. Paul talked about uh, that to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10. When, when you read that, he, he says, first of all, that he was disciplining his body and, and making it his slave so that after preaching to others, he himself might not be disqualified. He's not talking about losing his salvation, but rather he's saying, if I fall into sin, I could disqualify myself and become useless in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to speak in the same, on the same lines. He goes on to speak to the, to the Corinthians and gives them the example of the nation of Israel that God was not pleased with most of them and that most of them were laid low in the wilderness. So he uses that illustration to tell them, be careful, be careful, don't play with sin. In fact, some of you are actually sick. Some of you have died because you're playing with sin. And so you're, be, you're, you're getting to the point where you're not even useful in the kingdom of heaven. You've disqualified yourself. And so uh, the point is, of course, that you can forfeit your usefulness to God in the kingdom by holding on to sin. And David understood that. And so he is, he is abandoning his sin. And he's saying, don't do this, please. Lord, forgive me, have mercy, don't leave, take me away from your presence, don't take your spirit from me, give me mercy. So, positively, again, he wanted a heart of obedience. Negatively, he needed not to have his position uh, taken from him as the, the king of Israel, or rather the empowerment to be the king of Israel, the rightful king of Israel. He didn't want that taken from him because of his sin. But more than that, he wanted his salvation to be so real to him that it energized him in every way, that it filled him with joy and that it left him with a willing spirit. He talks about restoring, having his, uh, the joy of his salvation restored and being sustained with a willing spirit. Uh, uh, the, the word willing there means ready. It, it, it's the people, by the way, who bask in the sun of their own redemption who are most helpful in the work of the Great Commission. Right? Those who are forgiven much, love much. If you are consciously aware of the great things that God has done for you, then you are going to be useful in the kingdom because you're going to be filled with God's love and what God, with gratitude. And that's what David wanted. He wanted his, the joy of his salvation. He wanted his salvation to be real to him. And for him to know that and for him to live every second of his existence as one who um, had been saved by the blood of the Lamb. So, you aspire for holiness, not only on the grounds that it produces God-pleasing uh, uh, God, uh, pleasing mindset, but also as that which produces God-pleasing results. 
Now beyond that, you aspire for holiness as that which produces praise to Him. Praise. Verses uh, 14 through 19. It says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. So notice, forgiveness and restoration end in heartfelt praise. And David begins with uh, personal praise and then he moves on to public praise, corporate praise. He says that his deliverance from the sin of murder, uh, specifically that he had committed, would end up in his own tongue joyfully singing of God's righteousness. You say, how can that be? How, how is it that God forgives a murderer and then he is praised as righteous? Well, the answer is the cross, of course, because at the cross, God gets to forgive while upholding justice. And so he is, because of Jesus, able to be praised as a uh, righteous judge. And David wants that. He says, open up my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. He wants to praise God as one who figured out a way to forgive Him and yet stay as one who is righteous. Um, because God, and then, and then He says, uh, open up my lips and, and, and that I would praise you. Why? Well, because God does not delight in mere external religion. Uh, why praise? Why a heart full of joy and glorying in the Lord? Again, because God doesn't want your external ritual. He doesn't. He doesn't care about it. He wanted uh, the hearts of His worshipers. He wants those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. And He wants broken hearts and contrite spirits. After all, we all fall, fall short of the glory of God. And He's able to save us through Christ. So He says, that He would not despise us if we come to Him with our broken hearts, that's the only way to really, truly come to Him, then He will not turn us away. Because that's the only way to come to Him in truth, with a broken heart. So God forgives so that you might praise Him. You, individually, you, me. So that we might praise Him. But also, so that there would also be a congregation of those who praise His name, of those who sing his praises, because notice that after David himself prayed for the Lord to fill his own heart with praise, then he starts to pray for Zion. He, he wanted Jerusalem to be built up as the city of the great king. It's a prayer that we ourselves are still making, that God would raise up Zion, that he would save Jerusalem, that he would make it the place of his holy habitation. Because once God restores it, then that will be, of course, an unspeakable blessing to the church global when God has brought His people back and has restored them, then we, all of us, will rejoice in a way that we have never rejoiced as a Gentile church. And David says that in his own day, that, that when the people of God, when they, when they were prospering, when they were doing well spiritually, 
then they would then offer righteous sacrifices. They would offer burnt offerings, as it says here, and young bulls in, in the right way. So notice the point of verse 16, back in, back in verse 16, where it says that God did not delight in sacrifice, that was not to say that you never engage in the ordinances that God commands. No, the point is that the external service, if it is devoid of inward praise, then that service is worthless. He wants both and, not either or. He wants you to fulfill His commandments, such as come to church, read your Bible. But if those things are devoid of a personal praise of God, then they are worthless. You have to have both. You have to have both and. God wants people who, who live for Him and He wants true praise from a redeemed congregation. That's the end goal of forgiveness. It is worship. It is praise. It is joy. But again, a joy that God Himself gives. One that we don't have to fake. One, one that we don't have to talk ourselves into. But rather, we do the mourning. God does the comforting. So when you sin, you, again, you ask for compassion. You acknowledge your guilt. And you aspire you breathe after holiness because God wants to be lived for. He wants us to live for Him. God wants to be delighted in. And that is how you deal with sin. Sin, again, an ever-present reality in the life of the believer. Always with us until we make it to glory. And so... You need to learn how to deal with it. You need to learn how to crush its head and how to do war with sin all the time because it will be with you all the time. So you learn to deal with it and may all of us deal with sin like David did or like the man of Proverbs where it says that you confess your sin and you forsake it and in doing so you prosper.